everybody. Welcome to Outspoken, episode 100. Whew, finally. Uh, it feels like I've been counting down to 100, or I guess counting up is what you do. So many, many thanks to anybody who's been listening from the very beginning. That's amazing. I appreciate you beyond words. Uh, and if you joined anywhere in the middle or just recently or on this very episode, uh, thank you. Welcome. Um, however, if you're just joining on this episode, I entreat you to go back one to number 99 for part one of this interview. So this being part two, uh, we're going to talk to John some more about some of his experiences, but then also about uh, his friend, his dear friend, Bruce Beckford, who was easily one of the best animators of all time. Um, his work with clay and his drawings are, and the way that he animated them are just beyond belief. Even after you see them, you have trouble believing that one person could imagine and invent and create all that stuff and also photograph and edit everything himself. So um, I had the good fortune to meet Bruce a handful of times over a span of probably 15 years. Um, and I even had the great fortune to uh, interview him on this podcast, which I'm very grateful for. Um, but I'm even more grateful that he led me to two new friends, John and his wife, Debbie, who I feel deeply connected to, even though we've only known each other a short time. So um, thanks, Bruce, and thanks, Eric, for introducing me to Bruce, and thanks, Aaron, for helping me get to know him a bit better. And now thanks to John for sharing his impressions of his good friend through the years, and also for sharing his own life. So let's get back to it. You know, I, I pride myself on trying to be an honest man. And you think the Catholic thing would have whipped it into me. But I figured, because of my dad's, uh, his rebellious streak, uh, I thought all these teachers are my enemies. You know, if yeah. unless proven innocent, they're going to torpedo me because they did try to a few times. I had a locker and in the locker were my cartoons. And my cartoons guide the teachers, a lot of the cartoons. So I'd have the teachers' names and they'd be looking stupid or cross-eyed. Well, then my friends started contributing to this uh, compilation of cartoons. And they would have these teachers in bed with one another, and thick figures even, and all kinds of thought bubbles and, you know, word bubbles and stuff. I love it. Imagine. And, you know, as you know, I've, I've uh, Justin, I declared myself yesterday that I am on a new, I'm turning a page. It's only been about the 10 or I don't know how many New Year's that I stopped re relying on naughty biz, naughty bits and words. But anyway, no, it was it was terrible, terrible. Well, this, something alerted the stu the uh, teachers or somebody. They raided my locker. They got all this stuff. They questioned all of my friends. We think John Hempert is a very sick sick boy. Oh you shit! No, no, I I don't know anything. They stonewalled it. Wow. So in other words, I thought one little slip. And I'm off to Nam. So, you know? so the so the whole staff or a whole bunch of teachers read all those cartoons. Think, yeah, yeah. Because my friend's gym teacher told him, he says, "Hey, look, Don. This is a friend of Aaron's, by the way, Don, and who lives in San Francisco now." But he says, "Now, look, Don. I'm a pretty open-minded guy, but there's drawings of testicles this high or something, you know." Uh -huh. <laughs> and so, it was in my locker. So I got you know, pin for the whole lot. That sucks. It's, I don't think, I, I think that's an invasion of privacy. And, <laughs> well, and I, I presume you never got that. <laughs> Sorry, what? It was, it was a, a violation of art. Absolutely. And, and you never got it back, right? I presume. Oh, no, no. <laughs> Do you, uh, did you continue? Somewhere it's out there. <laughs> that's amazing. I wonder if anyone made copies or, you know, they probably sent it forward to the central school district. Like, can we evaluate this? Right. Well, look, uh, Justin, when I was in sixth grade, I was drawing a lot of pictures in black and, you know, with black crayon. And the teacher called my mother 
and, and said, we're worried about John. He seems to prefer drawing in black. Well, I still think that's the best, if you have one color, that that's the most effective for drawing cartoons. And I was drawing Frankensteins and stuff, werewolves. I loved werewolf and Frankenstein. Yeah. So I've drawn those since fourth grade, which, you know, upset my teachers. The teacher in fourth grade called my parents and said, he's using too much slang. <laughs> he says, gall. Oh my God. Gosh. And, you know, and this is because I was watching TV and, you know, like Cheyenne uh, cowboy stuff. Yeah. Hey, what are you doing, partner? Or so I don't know what I was up to, but you know, and I wore a mad magazine a mad magazine t-shirt in fourth grade to school. And that alerted them. There's something wrong with this guy. Did it have Alfred E. Newman yeah. on it? Yeah, I still have it. You do? Yeah. Do you do you continue to draw or was that just No. No, um, they beat it out of me, I think. Oh, that <laughs> it sucks. Was, uh, yeah, I, I don't say I was good, but you know, I love doing it. Would you consider doing it again? Oh yeah. Yeah. Do you well, I just do sit around and Christmas cards? I'll make a caricature of something, you know. What would you? What would you want to do? Right, like do cartoon strips or do in just sketch? Like, what would your preference well, be? First off, I try to get some technique together because I respect that. I respect that in your brother. Mm-hmm. It's like if you're looking at music, I, I also respect that. Not alone, not by itself, but I do respect a guy who hunkers down and works on that end of it. You know. Yeah. But that comes partly from my background too, because I took first, I took, I, I never took jazz guitar really, but I took um, instruction from Gary Peacock, with form, who just died recently, who was with Miles Davis and Keith Jarrett and oh, wow. Robert Ayler and all these guys. And, uh, um, and he, he got me into Schoenberg's uh, Harmonalera, which was a harmony text, and I really enjoyed it. And uh, this is before I went to college for music. I was a political major in, in my bachelor's. Anyway, so, but I had another teacher. Uh, uh, he was a, well, he was a piano instructor, but I was taking from him to learn, you know, some technical things. And he was notorious about terrorizing his piano students. Mm. Just an ogre. Right. But with me, he he could, you know, he we got on like, like uh, on fire, you know, we were great friends, but he had this thing like, do you want to talk baby talk all your life? Right. In other words, he thought you should advance yourself as much as you can. So, well, you know, you, you do all this stuff, like Oscar Peterson said, you burn through all the scales and everything so you can forget about it. Right. Now, you know, these are old saws and some people disagree completely. They don't want, they want a feral kind of primitive you know, Beatles thing. You just go and you have at it. Don't don't bother about theory or anything. There's a lot of guys that are just wonderful doing that. I mean, you know, great musicians. But this guy was like that. Now he had, as a boy, gone to the armory here in the late '40s, and he said he saw what he called all these jungle gym artists. There was a number of bands that were performing down there, jazz bands and R&B bands. And these guys are all hopping around playing tenor sax and all this stuff. And then he sees this guy that just stood there stock still and played circles around everybody. It was Charlie Parker. Wow. So that was his, that was an aha for him. You got to take care of business. Mm -hmm. You know, anything less than that. And what are you doing? Yeah, I guess that's, if you're doing it as a career, that makes sense to me. Well, particularly if you're operating in a, in a, style of music, you know, I mean, a particular, if you're going to play bebop or something, you better get it together. You're going to, you're not going to get any work or appreciation or anything. You're just jiving. Right. You're just going to only be able to jive. Anyway, yeah. where were we? <laughs> well, that's, I mean, that's an interesting, I mean, I'm much more of what you described as the feral approach, yeah. but that's, it may just be out of impatience or, you know, I don't, I don't think I'm lazy, but I have some weird blocks against things. And one of those things is like, you know, reading manuals, reading a, an instruction yeah. manual. Yeah. So when I was, you know, I didn't, I just barely had any kind of lessons as a kid uh, for both guitar and piano. And in both cases, they were non-traditional methods where we didn't read sure. music. And uh, so it was a lot of just uh, learning by ear and improvising and when i wanted i wanted to become like 
just proficient enough to learn how to make my own song. And, uh, so I wasn't that interested in learning scales and I was given scale, you know, I was given some homework, but I wanted to learn how to make a song or make, you know, just write music. And so I started by playing other people's, but only for a minute. Like I just didn't, I wanted to, I wanted to just go from there off on my own. And I started doing that before I learned any kind of reading of anything. And then I just never stopped. And I, you know, I probably could, I mean, I know that I could read, learn to read music and probably in a fairly short time period, I could also learn how to fix a car, you know, but I haven't done that. interested in the the whole scope of your musicianship because it's been such a major part of your life yeah but i've learned only tonight that you also like to draw oh no i haven't i haven't i just draw stuff for um i mean i was into it when i was a little kid (laughs) and i was also making clay figures i made after seeing Twenty Thousand leagues under the sea i was absolutely besotted with squids and octopus uh-huh. and i started drawing those and making clay figures and a japanese artist came over and visited our our little private school and was fascinated that some american was interested in squids at this age and he probably didn't know anything about the movie coming out right so he took that my mom re- regrets that or regretted that i that she didn't keep it or something like that it was just a kid i am not gifted like in music or anything. I just happen to love it. That's gift enough, you know? Yeah, well, I'm not saying you you should be. In fact, I'm saying yeah. the opposite. Like it's yeah. it's awesome that you enjoy it and wouldn't it be nice to do more of what you enjoy? Yeah, well, then you look at it like uh, you hear all these boomers and of course they invented music and everything was better in their day and all this stuff. Right. And we were an anomaly of an anomaly after World War II. We had things called Teenagers, right? Didn't exist. We had things called allowances, paper routes. Uh, We won the war, right? So we coast. So there was guys like me, dimwits, who can now fancy. I'm an artist, you know, because we came up with that kind of leisure time, and yeah, I was entitled. I was a white middle class Protestant, you know. Yeah, I had I had enough means that I could seriously. Think about God. I'll get in a band. Well, you know? I want I'll go to college and get in a band. But but what do you think? Because because even in saying that, it sounds like there's like I can hear the societal judgment coming through. Like that's not an okay pursuit, you know. But what? Judge, but what judge. if <laughs> Bruce Bickard always called me? Oh, you're so judgmental. No, but and I don't. I, but it's not I, you. I am too. I am too. I think. Hey, we we exalt this stuff. 
like, you know, we had the best music and we had this and we had that. Yeah. It was exceedingly privileged. And um, it, it, it was a, an accident or, you know, it was an historical moment where we were so privileged to have all this leisure time, a culture that became driven by teenagers because they overtook the market yeah. because of the glut of the boomers. So we were, we became a very important economic, you know, uh, uh, demographic, right? So we could steer the ship. We're still trying to steer it. You yeah. know? And we, so in other words, it, it was very much an unusual thing and we can be happy in it. I'm not saying we shouldn't be, but we were lucky as hell. Yeah. Well, I, I agree. I mean, I think it's, it's a really amazing time to have been alive in this country and, and to be right in the thick of so many of the things you experienced. I think it's really lucky and, and just awesome. But to see it, like when, I think when you have that privilege, you are meant to uh, partake of it. You know, yeah. you're not yeah. like you, you live in the abundance of what's there because it's amazing and sharing it is and experiencing it is what it's all about. You don't want to restrict. I quite, I quite agree. Share it. Yeah. Realize that you have this and then don't hate people that came before you because they were different and grew up in completely different circumstances where like my dad was a depression era kid. Right. Yeah. So I asked him, can I, can I have 50 cents to buy a record? Huh? A record, uh, 50 cents for a sound. Yeah. Well, he's right. W what a preposterous to commodify this, this noise. Right. And I'm sure glad they did, but still, it's like wow. If you if you step back in a minute, you know. Well, if you look at it through an economic lens, it seems weird. But if you look yeah. at it through a, an experiential lens, it seems perfectly oh, like you would magic. pay anything for that, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, it was magic. Yeah, but I do agree. It's like, uh, let's you know, there is that. Uh, I mean, you know, you you make these values. Some people would reject it completely, but you do think let's give everybody a share, you know, mm -hmm. make opportunities for this. But that's sort of like, let's everybody be American. Right. I mean, there's an element of that, but um, you know, I'm more than grateful for having grown up um, when I did where I did. Let's talk a little bit about Bruce, just because I'm I'm curious about how you guys met and what your early relationship was like, and if you just have a few anecdotes of his like just his incredible way of looking at the world. Okay, uh, so yeah, so I met him. I was playing a nightclub, um, right directly off the freeway here, the I five, right, and so he came down with a. a bandmate I had in the 60s. I was in a band called The Soul Sounds and he played trumpet and he turned into a photographer and a filmmaker and all this stuff. And so he's going to come down and shoot promo shots for our band on the stage. And this is 1970. And he comes down and he brings his friend, Bruce Bickford. And Bruce is outside of the club. There's a uh, lamppost, metal lamppost, and he shimmies up to the top of it. <laughs> That was my introduction to the fact that the guy could climb trees 
like Billy Be Damned, and he loved doing it, and he prided himself on it. And I found out later that Bruce held the record for his uh, for for pull-ups, and still might hold. I mean, he was he was way beyond record sent before that in his school district. He prided himself on this kind of stuff. Yeah. Anyway, so he comes in, and I don't know if he ever took a shot, but I visited these guys in their studio. They were next door to the jazz uh, club studio, right near the university district, right near the very first uh, Red Robin restaurant. I don't know if you guys have that down there, but anyway. Uh, so they roomed together there, and they had won they were co-winners of a prize in a, a suburb, the Bellevue to Seattle, Bellevue Arts Fair. And so Bruce and this guy, Carl Krogstad, had um, won this uh, prize together jointly. And they're working there. And so I go, and here's Bruce, and I see he's working on something. And I go over and I said, what's going on? And he says, oh, this is flat earth. And he's showing me these uh, transparencies or something. And I'm intrigued. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're interested in Bruce's work, You've pretty, he's much pretty, you've made a friend pretty much, I think, right then. Right away. Yeah. Yeah. So then he starts showing up at our gigs, and I'm going to his house, and he's coming to mine. And we both like the mothers. And he goes, and so I'd come home from college, and my dad would say, I was living with my parents in the basement. And I come home, and dad says, uh, Bruce is downstairs. Okay. And so this would be afternoon or something. I go down. And he's got the lights out, and I can hear him laughing. He's listening to like Bert Weenie Sandwich, <laughs> or whatever the, the Frank had going, yeah. or Coliseum, which was an English kind of band, and uh, English band. And he's in there, and he would be lying on my bed with the lights out, and he would see these images that the music conjured up, evoked in his imagination. And he'd be making these stories up or, you know, they'd have storylines. Like every get, song would be, he would, he would be. I don't, I don't know about every song, but enough songs, mm-hmm. probably everyone on the, on the Zappa stuff. And uh, so, you know, he'd be chuckling and, or, <laughs> you know, and, and, and so years later, uh, a segue decades later, uh, my friend from high school, my locker partner, Don, is working in the Tenderloin District of San Francisco at the YMCA Hotel. And he sees a list of uh, unpaid bills by the tenants. Bruce Bickford, is it? That's that friend John has. He met him up here once. So he goes to Bruce's room, knocks on it, and Bruce answers, oh, yeah. Uh, you know, I met you, et cetera. So he takes Bruce home and gives him a place to stay in DuBose between the ten- between uh, the Castro and the Hate. Mm-hmm. And Bruce is living there. And then Don calls up and he sounds shaky and he goes, uh, John, I had to ask Bruce to leave. And I said, oh, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not, I don't say anything like I'm not surprised, but he says, oh, that's just perfect. Somewhat, uh, sorry. So Don calls up and says, hey, I had to Bruce, ask Bruce to leave. Oh, what happened? Well, the wife and I would be in bed at three or four in the morning. We hear, <laughs> uh, he said, my blood ran cold. It gave me chill. So I said, so I hang up and, and uh, my dad says, uh, or I told my dad, I said, yeah, Don had called me and said, he asked Bruce to leave. Why? We was laughing. I don't blame Don a bit or something like that, you know. It would scare the shit out of you to hear like a evil well, laugh. And, but he was listening to music probably and coming no, up with stories. I think, I think he just laughed. He would make – he wasn't, I don't think. Okay. Just, but at, at that point, he was going around looking for work. That was before he scored with Frank. He went to Frisco to see R. Crumb. Right. And R. Crumb entertained him. Bruce said it was just like the cartoons, kids crawling around and stuff, and, and him being crotchety to his old lady or whatever. And But he didn't have any work for Bruce, and so Bruce kept going, and then somehow he got to Frank. I don't know that story. But uh, anyway, so Bruce uh, got the gig, and I would communicate with him by phone. When uh, I was on the road a lot, uh, and 
by mid seventies and or by seventy three four I guess, and then particularly by seventy six and seven, and so I'd ring him up, and uh, I used to prank him by. Uh, just I wouldn't say hello, Bruce. How are you? This is John. I'd just say, "Hey, Bruce, what happens if you combine starch with sugar?" And he'd obviously be in, he'd be stoned. This would be in the afternoon. And he'd go, oh, <laughs> "Hey, uh, yeah, you caught me uh, kind of an off moment, you know." And I could tell he was just tweened out of his cord. But uh, then <clears throat> he'd come up every once in a while. His brother committed suicide, and I saw him when he came up for that. And uh, then he left Frank's employment and came back to his, he lived near the airport in SeaTac, what's now called SeaTac, Kent, where my wife is from. So he went back to the family home and just started working out of there for the rest of his life, basically. Right. Uh, Yeah, that's where I met him. And uh, that's where I last saw him too. And he loved that valley. He loved natural settings. Yeah, I mean that house is amazing because, and especially yeah. where he sat to draw, it's just like this little birdhouse, you know, perched in yeah. on the edge of the ravine, you know, looking over. Well, that was his father, the engineer's uh, design, right? And had really kind of advanced uh, concepts built into it, you know, some kind of water heated floor. Other people can tell you details about that. Yeah, uh, but you know, but it was yeah. cantilevered out over the canyon a little yeah. bit. Kent Valley. And before Kent Valley is just now a blinding bunch of lights at nighttime, it was, you know, very pretty. And Bruce just loved his ventures to the Green River, mm-hmm. always loved trees. And uh, uh, he, I mean, trying to keep up with him in the bush was impossible. And I, I know he took pride in it. He would just, it'd be like he'd be a gazelle running through the high brush and I'd be stumbling trying to keep up with him. Yeah. You know. Yeah, he but, uh, talked about that a bit when I spoke to him. You know, he said he was he was never athletic in terms of sports, but yeah. you know, tree climbing, he was the best, and everyone everyone knew it. And uh, everyone acknowledged it. Yeah. <laughs> and still, unfortunately, Bruce, Bruce had a memory that, at least for a long time, was nearly photo, photographic. His uncle, in fact, did have a photogra- photographic memory, and of course, that uncle killed himself at nineteen years old. Mm. But um, in other words, there was you know, mental instability and, and also, uh, you know, sort of preternatural talents, or I, I don't know how to describe it, but yeah. gift, uh, certain kinds of gifts. And so Bruce had this himself and could remember shots from movies. Like if I mentioned, hey, I saw this movie. Oh, look, do you remember when they got off the boat, the, the, the camera angle, you know, something like that, or the lighting yeah. or the size of someone's butt or something? It always, you know... I'd mentioned seeing something and he'd seen it when he was a boy and he'd have these memories. Amazing. His father said he could sit there at two years old and just draw all for hours. Didn't require any maintenance. Right. But anyway, so he, he prided himself on certain things, but it haunted him because, okay, he lost a wrestling match. He and his brothers were always wrestling. He was one of four boys, two older than he. And so their friends would come around and they'd be wrestling. This is what I mean about the Kent culture he grew up in, you know, kind of roughneck. And if you don't mind me being a little bit too uh, uh, patronizing about it all. Please, no, just yeah. anyway, characterizing. That's good. But no, really, they were, you know, a lot of them, anyway, uh, you know, uh, juvenile delinquents for starters. Okay. Anyway, so um, – he he would say, "Look, I could I could have taken him if you know or something. You know, he always was regretting somebody that bested him at wrestling, or I almost had him be- bested or something. He might have done a few. He might have won a few, but it, these his photographic memory would play back incessantly. It was like, you know, if you read Oliver Sacks on these kinds of uh, memories and uh, they're 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 counted as disorders. I mean, you know, syndromes mm-hmm. of earworms. You know, hearing Mary had a little lamb twenty four hours a day and, and this kind of stuff. Well, Bruce would have these loops that would visit him unbidden of memories, like eating at the table, and the sounds of people eating their food would drive him berserk. Mm-hmm. You know, so when he would tell me he was crazy, I would think, well, you're just hypersensitive, and you've got a mind that won't let go of it. 
you know, you just, unfortunately, this talent of yours for these memories and visual memories and audio memories are, you know, it's the other side of that coin. Right. It's a gift and it's also torturing you. But stop it. Well, I know. You know, it's like he knew it was uh, ridiculous and a waste of time to be to be bedeviled by these memories, but he couldn't shake it. Yeah, I can relate to to Bruce. I I have the similar, I have sensitivities like that that drive me mad, and I and I don't know how to con- like I know intellectually it's absurd, mm-hmm. but I can't seem to control it. Like I don't think I know. I've got them too, but. Uh, I mean, you know, ghosts from Christmas past or whatever, you know, all the people yeah. that I'm missing. That's a recurrent one. Mm-hmm. Or how fast time is slipping away. But Bruce would just have these resentments. Right. They were just as fresh when he was, you know, 40 years after the fact as when it occurred. Right. Which by any measure is is not healthy. Like not, not at him. Yeah. You know, not at him. Uh, anyway, so... But uh, he had, uh, he also went through eras where he'd have these certain kind of, they're almost like pivot words or phrases. So that maybe in the early 70s, we'd go to a movie. Like we went, for example, I think I told you before, um, we went to Polanski's um, Macbeth. And uh, he lasted... He may have lasted five minutes. Now, this became a recurrent uh, thing. I, I, I contacted my friend a little while ago. He was with me on this one, and Bruce, Bruce abandoned us. He got into five minutes, and, uh, are you shitting me? And he'd get up and walk out. Hey, uh, hey look, I, I, I got to go. And he drove us there. So he takes off. Uh, but the idea was, hey, Bruce, I just paid you know two, $2.50 or 3 bucks or whatever to get in here. I'm not going now. Right. I've seen five minutes of. I never said it that strenuously. It's just he knew the score. No, I'm not. I'm going to stay here, and um, so that was a, that was a repeated uh, kind of behavior. It was, uh, oh, are you shitting me? <laughs> and then it would be, oh, piss on it. I heard that, piss poor. And these those those phrases had a life a shelf life of about twenty years. Right. One time I said to me, he he written a story or something. And I said, are you shitting me? And he looks up and he goes, I, I wouldn't do that. And then, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and then, uh, and then I was talking to his other friend, Greg, about this. There was an era where these laughs would well up. This was like in the eighties. It start with this kind of slow, it'd be a crescendo, <laughs> you know, he'd be drooling, he'd be anywhere. And he'd be drooling and he'd go, oh, you know, and then he'd wipe his face and he'd still be laughing. (laughs) And then it got to be another phrase was, oh, that's so token. You know, (laughs) I hear that, I think. And I didn't bother to say, what what is, what's your, what what do you mean token? You know, I just let it go. (laughs) And because he'd be expounding them on something, you know, how cheap it was or something. Right. And, uh, Oh gosh! I, so, what would be the things in a movie that would get him to stand up and say, "Are you shitting me?" and, and walk uh, out? It would be like it's when he didn't believe I the script, or he, or something. I don't know. Okay, it would be all of a sudden he just explode. I'd, I'd start hearing a few things, and I think, "Uh oh," and then it'd be, you know, so like he saw Excalibur, <laughs> and that just disgusted him because the Arthurian Nigel, whoever it was, Green, I think it was, was just not up to snuff. And then he heard a line, which this was, this is the kind of thing that just made Bruce sick. And it was, uh, okay, Lancelot falls in love with Guinevere. And he's hiding this, uh, I think it's by the point he's hiding, he's, he's suppressing his love and she for him. And so uh, I think he's wounded or something, Lancelot. And, and King Arthur says something about, well, come back when you're, healed and and Lancelot goes or you, you know you're been uh, wounded or something and Lancelot goes with this pathetic look it is deep <laughs> meaning the woman and that was it adios Bruce you know it's like it failed on a whole number of scores right 
He had no time for Nicole Williamson, who I, I enjoyed. No, that was nothing. And he, he might have been interested in Helen Mirren, I can't remember, but no, that was it. It was a damning Nigel Green. And Lancelot was a pretty boy who actually turned up in this, uh, what shall I say, grindhouse movie that I saw okay. earlier this year. Um, so that was the kind of thing. Uh, his dad, Bruce's father, was interested a lot in Bergman's films, Ingmar Bergman's films, and would take Bruce to some of them. And Bruce could appreciate the photography, but later on, he despised them for, I say, what did your dad like about that? And he go, oh, you know, family stuff. <laughs> and so then that was his quarrel with Spielberg, that he was sentimental, uh, okay. which was death to Bruce sentimental about the American family. Well, given Bruce's family, yeah, not, I don't know. Fred, Fred was dangerous, threatened his father and Bruce. You know, mm. Steve, the unfortunate younger brother, the older one was killed in a plane crash. Jesus. Bruce was convinced both of his parents were insane, that he was insane as well. You know, wow, a dark situation. So the idea of... Uh, I suppose I, ne I never discussed it much deep, but he just rejected Spielberg as look, the, the guy needs me to help him. You know, how <laughs> to make a movie, you know, what was also, okay, here's one that drove him crazy. This is a, this is an insight. He sees the dirty dozen. He despises that. And the, the tell was that if you can recall, or your listeners can recall when they're hurling these bombs down into the, sh into the underground where the Germans have been um, captured and in the jail, in the dungeon cell. Yeah. So um, Marvin comes over and he removes a kind of a, a top of a canister for air uh, to go to the basement, I guess, or something. Mm -hmm. And he takes that off and he hurls down these bombs or something as if that isn't cruel enough. And then he takes effort to replace the top of the, of the canister. Okay. Now, Bruce thought, now who would do that? Right. In other words, at some point, he would have objections, no matter how fantastic Bruce's own films were, or what kind of, you know, uh, suspension of disbelief his stuff required. Right. That, that kind of flaw was in it was just uh it was an abomination and he'd be out of his seat in an instant at that you know and that, so did he did he walk out of the dirty dozen at the I, I, wasn't, I wasn't with him on that I don't, I don't know if he did because that happens like 10 minutes from the end so if he made it yeah, that far yeah, he, yeah he, he must have lasted that long yeah you know but he, maybe he lasted the whole thing because he he really respected Clint Walker. Jim Brown, mm -hmm. Marvin. Uh, he respected physical specimens in actors. Right. And these guys were real men. They were real men to him. You know, they just happened to be actors. But to use them in such a cheap fashion, you know, or Savalas, you know. Right. Um, what else with Bruce? I can't. Where else? To... Well. Oh, yeah. He was also... People would find him charming. I'd go, I'd go to his exhibitions at the Seattle Art Museum or a little theater down in Pike Place Market by the waterfront, and he'd come out. I brought him back a uh, ascot. I was telling him, look, clothes make the man, Bruce. Let's get you clean. Uh, and so I, I went to London in 82, and I got, I went to Harrods and I bought him an ascot, a silk ascot and brought it back to him. And by God, if he wasn't wearing that and then his, and I said, well, now you need a smoking jacket. So he goes, well, what's that? I tell him and his mother um, knit him, fashioned a, a maroon velour smoking jacket. That's awesome. So, oh, Bruce would show up at these things wearing his smoking jacket and a cravat, his uh, ascot. And, uh, then he starts, you know, his hair is growing increasingly longer and his beard and stuff. And he comes out on stage and it's just like what you're talking about. They'd ask him questions. And it was like, it wasn't that he said anything inappropriate. You know, it's just that he's just this spaced out character that doesn't, that seems oblivious to any kind of celebrity kind of put on. 
right. you know? Yeah. He's a big guy, but he's just talking, he's dismissive of things like, oh, you know, I, I just work with clay or, you know, or something like that. Or, you know, hey, uh, yeah, my family's crazy. I'm the craziest one. You know? <laughs> Or whatever. He just, you know, they loved him. The audience just worshipped him. Even his enemies said that. Huh. They just they just love his character, his personality. They did with for all Mr. Bickford's interest in psychology, in Freud, in Alan Watts, in Bergman. Mm-hmm. Uh, he never, you know, I don't. They never said what happened to you. I mean, directly. I don't think so. I, I don't know. The other brother, they never addressed his schizophrenia. He was hearing voices. Stop it. Yeah, it didn't sound like there was a lot of uh, communication of feelings or anything. And yet. Mr. Bickford did what he thought was best. He would limit the television watching for the boys. The youngest boy would get nightmares after the elder boys would be watching like a monster movie. Mm-hmm. And he would police that, you know. Right. And he's saying, uh, hey, you know what gives Steve's nightmares? You're not supposed to watch that stuff. Right. And he'd come in and turn the television off. And he didn't watch much television himself at all. And uh, But he was he, always drawing, right? But no, Mr. Bickford, he was always always reading or building something. Right. And so, well, yeah, no, Bruce liked to watch TV with his brothers. And he had to go to the neighbors to watch Superman and stuff like that, Uh which which was gigantic in in the early 50s. It was every, And uh, I was addicted to that. And um, but and Bruce, I would talk about particular episodes and the and the bit players he got fascinated early on with these bit players like John Kellogg, uh, 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 Peter Whitney. These are guys that we called the versatiles because we got a book on them and they had all these supporting character actors, you know, mm-hmm. we love, um, you know, they turn up in, in all these different movies, Roy Teal or Ray Teal. Um, but these are the guys, Bruce had a real fascination for, um, uh, uh, Warren. Oh, please help me. Uh, he had a, it because of his head, the shape of his head. Warren, Warren Oates. Warren Stevens. Stevens. Okay. He loved Warren Oates, but Warren Stevens. You can look him up on sci-fi and stuff movies. He liked him because yeah. of the shape of his head. Yeah, yeah. And he, Bruce, was very, very deep into astrology, and would suspect, would conjecture signs by people's physiognomy, their builds, 
stature, I mean, or whatever, um, their attitudes, their concerns, and he would share them with me. And he'd call up all the time, hey, uh, what, what kind of, what do you think this guy's sign is? And, you know, I didn't realize well, that that was based in astrology. His conjecture of around that. Oh, God, yeah, yeah. That's no. He, would, he had tables. He, if you said to him, "When what date was he born?" Uh, you know, he'd have it mm. until he until maybe he got older. He he got a little fuzzy with well, not surprising given his health. Yeah. Before that, he would say, "He's such and such. This guy is right next to it, but he's on the cusp, or he's got a such and such rising sign." Right. Or whatever it was, and he would group these people like he had Steve Reeves. No, Steve Reeves. Yeah, did I misspeak? Steve Reeves. No, or no, sorry. God, uh, uh, George Reeves. Okay, all the Reeves. He was Superman. George Reeves. Sorry, George Reeves, and Lee Majors, and Donald, uh, English actor, blonde. Pleasance. No, way before that. Uh, I'll try to figure it out. But anyway, he would group people and they did have striking kinds of similarities, like in their bone structure, heads or something, you know, and, or they were really good at a certain kind of role. Or if one of our, I had a bass player, he was like a a Virgo or something. What was it? No. um, Cancer. And the guy loved food and was sort of a homebody. Uh, you know, and, and so that fit because, you know, they were, he, he loved food. That was it. But he looked at me once and, and he goes, Libra all the way. <laughs> I said, What's that mean? And, you know, he laughed off later on. He told me, you know, the sweet thing. Oh, that's nice. And, and uh, he'd say, he'd say it's in my eyes and he'd look at other actors and he'd say, what sign do you think that guy is? I say, I don't know. He'd go, Libra, look at the eyes. Wow. You know, that kind of searching, hoping look, or I don't know what he had, but so he'd nail me with that once in a while. And what was he? He was an Aquarius, which meant the water bearer. So he was bearing to mankind, unfolding and sharing his gifts is the way I looked at it. Mm. My mother was an Aquarius. Anyway, so he had everybody, you know. Yeah. Uh, he had everybody down, like Kirk. Du- All these guys were his favorites: Kirk Douglas and Burt Lancaster, who he referred to as Fence Posthead. <laughs> and then he abbreviated Lancaster to Posthead. Well, I'd say, well, who started in that? Posthead. That's amazing. And so he liked the square jaw, like muscle bound, like a man's man. Yeah, he did. In fact, he he, um, he liked a guy named Rod Taylor, I think, or no, Rod. Uh, God, I can't think anymore. That's anyway, okay. some of these guys were just big lugs to me. Yeah. The guy had jug ears, and I'm thinking, Rod Cameron was his name. I, I just, when I was a kid, I thought, oh, boy, bland. And Bruce respected him. Yeah. Bruce, Bruce respected Cornell Wilde. He respected these guys that, you know, um, and, he, and he really, I don't know, he loved Struther Martin. He loved LK, LQ Jones. But were uh, they all like, they, did they play roles where they were sort of the underdog, but they? No. They, no? They were the leading yeah. men always, like the hero. They were never leading men. Like Struther Martin was the guy. What we have here is failure to communicate. Oh, okay. He was, you know. They're side he, characters, but they have, side but they were always. Rich. Okay. <laughs> and we used to, we used to, um, we, our guess was that some of these guys were ex- exceedingly efficient, like know their lines, quick studies, whatever, Right. They weren't handsome, but they were effective as hell. And they must have had talents that were, you know, that were rewarded by these roles, that they got all these roles doing this stuff because they're probably really gifted in that. Yeah. That was our guess. So he didn't just respect the shape of their head. It was it was their gift as well. Well, he was all over everything. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah you ever see that guy's arms or something like that, you know? Or, right. Uh, you know, no, he was, he was, this was astrological and there was something else happening, his drawing anatomy. And he really uh, appreciated people's different talents like that. And you could see it himself. He knew he couldn't play baseball worth a damn or football or any of this stuff, but by God, you know, get him on a parallel bar 
or climbing a tree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Um, well, I want to ask you the same question I asked Debbie, which is, uh, is, it, is there anything we didn't talk about that you wish you had or want to now? Well, let me look at my... Uh, you got your notes there. Oh, boy. I got the Fred Waring Orchestra, Harry Belafonte, Mary McKeeba, Jackie DeShanna, the Righteous Brothers, uh, the Soft Machine, Air Apparent, Vanilla, Vanilla Fudge, uh, Cream. These are all Jeff, bands that you saw. Paul Butterfield, Smokey Robinson, Booker T, Arthur Brown, Mallies Davis, Elvis, Jimmy McGriff, Jack McDuff, Brian Auger, Dave Lewis, Dr. John, Al Green, Every Mother's Son, Blind Faith, Roy Orbison, The Everleys, Emily Harris, Johnny Guitar Watson, Alan Holdsworth, Johnny Cash, Hank Snow, Travis Wamick, King Crimson, Blondie, Foghat, Ramones, uh, Emerson Lake and Palmer, White Trash, Johnny Mathis. It just goes on. Burt Backrack. <laughs> anyway, you know, I got Because I wrote this out for you, now I'm seeing, my God, what a misspent youth. Not at all. You know, it, you know, it wasn't. Yeah, no, I love it. But I didn't realize I'd seen all these people. That's great. That's yeah. a hell of a list. I forgot Lor uh, Loretta Lynn there. <laughs> Amazing. Well, anyway. is there anything we didn't cover that's like, a, no, what, what they no call a burning desire? No burning desires. Uh, we can always reconvene off mic and say, hey, you want to talk about this or whatever. For sure. Or you back to me and say, can we follow up on that? But you are an ace interviewer. In fact, I'm sorry I over, I over talk you, but I tend to do that. Not at uh, all. I wanted to hear you. But with Debbie, particularly myself, you just direct things with her. I, I mean, I, I mean it. I never heard this depth of her history in 25 years. Oh, you know? cool. Well, that's, thank you. That's nice to know. Well, Justin, I think you're the greatest. I, I wonder if you need another guitar. Uh, well, I want to send you a guitar. <laughs> Don't do it. You want to keep that. No. I'm telling you, those cheap guys that are about ready to explode, they got the sound, baby. I know, but Try I'm telling you, I'm not going to use it as it should be used. So, Well, no. If you use it on your show, can you lower the action, make it a little friendlier? Uh, it just needs work. It needs some, you know, bridge work and stuff that... You do it, my son, because I'm in my 72nd year. I'm 71. And when I croak, I've got, I don't know, maybe I've got 20 guitars by now. I don't know. But, you know, they're, they're going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give uh, the Academy or whoever wants to, the foundation, my Bruce Bickford drawings and the two, uh, you know, those two Alamos that he created for me, like almost like dioramas. Yeah, those are amazing. The one I saw. Because when I go, who's going to look at this stuff and know anything, you know? Well, hopefully we can... We can, you guys can save that archive and make it avail well, available be, for the. We'll be implicated in that as well. So there's no, if I'm, if I'm going down, I'm taking you with me. Let's put it that way. Well, I'm happy to be in the same, in the same uh, ship or whatever, how, whatever, <laughs> whatever analogy you want to use <laughs> as it goes down. Wives. Yeah. I, I would happily go down with the ship with you on it. Uh, well, I think you're a, a seemingly interesting person. I'm I'm sorry that Bruce was, in, um, you know, in, in the best of health when you met him. Yeah. Well, the first time I met him, I got to see that all the that vibrancy. I mean, I, yeah, we we got. I wish I had had more time with Bruce, but I'm happy for what I had, and I'm happy that it led me to you, and uh, we get to have a friendship. Absolutely, pal. No, that's a blood oath for friendships for life. Oh, I appreciate it, man. It's I, I feel the same way. Well, I, I I wish you'd write your autobiography. I mean, it just sounds uh, like I say. There's many aspects that are just uh, really intriguing. Oh, thanks, man. But, you know, but everybody's, you know, plumb anybody, and there's a there's a universe. I agree. I mean, that's kind of the idea behind this whole thing. I feel like everybody's yeah. got something pretty amazing to share, one way or another. We've well, this just my, this is my first podcast I've ever. Well, I haven't heard it yet, have I? Yeah, you've still never listened to one. I love that. <laughs> All right. Well, you maybe your own will be your first. My baptism. That's okay. Yeah. yeah. You're so yeah. vain. You're so vain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you can tell the vanity by the cars. Like Bruce drove a Ford Fiesta till it was just rubbish. <laughs> right. And I drove a Saab for 18 years. That might be a record. I don't know. Everything <laughs> fell apart. That's great. Yeah, but I'm I'm much more mainstream vanity than Bruce ever thought of being because you know 
Yeah, but you're a, you're a humble you're a humble gentleman. You're Maybe a, he liked being a werewolf. I, when he's talking about vanity, I'm st- I'm still trying to work the guy out. It just drives me crazy. What if? What if? You know? What if he had taken Prozac? Because his girlfriend now says that's the only thing. They think that this stuff with eating dis- disorders is, many cases anyway, uh, a genetic predisposition and psychopharmacological or something, right? Oh, I didn't that, know that. Yeah, like schizophrenia. Yeah. And that they have a terrible success rate in treating these people, even if Bruce would have got in to that, uh, that he got, the terrible irony was he got granted and then he gave his permission to go in two days before he died, maybe a day before he died. Oh, wow. To a special clinic in Colorado. They were going to pay full full ticket to fly him down on a copter or some damn thing, or airplane. But uh, anyway, the chances are, it wouldn't have succeeded. And I thought it was behavioralist, you know, like he gets around the same people, the same foods, the same ideas, the same environment. He's going to, it's all those triggers, even subconscious are going to subliminal are going to get him back into the, the addiction of starving himself. Right. And, uh, but no, Janice says now there's new evidence to show that it's undiagnosed in many men and that, uh, that there's a genetic uh, component in this. And she says the only thing that's shown to be somewhat um, effective is Prozac. Weird. Well, Bruce did get, when he got out of the bug house, I went to visit him in the university uh, clinic where he was put in there for a while. And, of course, he dismissed uh, yeah, everybody. They were stupid. <laughs> yeah, they didn't know. And, uh, I mean, you know, they wouldn't even gainsay mixing starch with... Uh, with acid, like I did. When he, he used to be horrified when I'd eat spaghetti marinara, just tomato sauce and spaghetti. He'd be mortified. And he refused to see me after I ate him because I'd act drunk, which was true. I didn't know. I'd feel like really groggy for all that input because I eat too much. I mean, at one sitting. Yeah. Anyway, but uh, he took uh, antidepressives for about two days. That's not by any... <laughs> account that will not have an effect yeah. within two years. but he chucked them yeah not for me right not for me and then uh we shared a lifelong friend was dr donald deans he grew up in these he was he came to seattle in the fit in 1950 when my dad when we got there in these apartment buildings that's how long i've known him well he's a dentist and it ends up george bickford went to him for his dentistry and Donald Deans was a very kind man and good man. And he uh, <clears throat> he practiced until he was 94. But George Bickford, when he got dementia, he would pay his bills three times over. Mm. And Dr. Deans, and once he spotted him walking around, not knowing where he was, gave him a ride home and then started giving him rides home when he'd make appointments. You know, good fella. So Bruce goes to him. And Bruce is losing his teeth. And then Bruce has to have some ripped out. Pretty soon it's evident Bruce is going to have to have, you know, false teeth. Donald Deans makes them. And I have, I take the Deans to Bruce's house within six months. We go down to the house to look at stuff. It's one of Bruce's party. And I thought, okay, I'll take the Deans. Go down there. (laughs) Here's Bruce's appliance on the counter in the kitchen. And we walk in and by this time, Donald Deans is bent over with like a, you know, what do you call it? A dowager's hump or whatever it is. His back is all like bent over. Uh And he walks in and he goes, looks at that and he goes, immediately sees it and goes, don't tell anybody he's my patient. (laughs) And this was the thing that drove me crazy about Bruce. Bruce was always, he had this thing about like you say, uh, robust kinds of actors and athletes. Right. And uh, he used to work out at Venice Beach with all these guys that were super strong. Yeah, he talked uh, about some of those guys. Schwarzenegger was down there, all this stuff. So he admired this kind of masculinity and strength, even in women. And uh, But it was always this, oh, I have a headache. You know, I mean, it was like he wouldn't put on the appliance. And I said, Bruce, it, your, your mouth is going to change. If you don't start wearing those things, uh, hey, you know, 
I got to go at a slow pace or something like that. Well, guess what? They never were used. So, thus, his ability to eat any kind of solid food, you know, went away. That, even peanut butter that had crunchy stuff in it, forfeit. Yeah. Just another stage. And you can drive yourself nuts thinking, if only, if only. Right. You know, that was the point where, if only, you know, and then that's and then the damn dog thing, which he invited the second one himself, in essence, by not avoiding the dog. Right. Yeah, I couldn't believe when I heard that it happened a second time, the same dog. You just tear your hair out because I'm saying to Nick, I'm saying, what the hell did he go by there for? Yeah. Kind of let the dog change his path. Oh man. And yet he knew the dog was growling at him. Yeah. You know, so that's what I mean about. When Bruce says he's insane, I I, I didn't think it. I didn't. Well, it's yeah. You know, it's kind of like he made his mind up about everything, and there was no changing it. Yeah. So why try? Like, why you know you're not gonna, there, you're not going to be able to. Another really amusing thing was if you approached him with something that was just common sense, he'd just look at you like, "Well, of course, right? Look, some people, you know, and he'd tell you, that. yeah." <laughs> You know, he'd be talking about all these military base experiments with guys that were just mutated by atomic radiation and shit. And they're like, their their shoulders are six feet wide and crap. But then you get to, or Sasquatch and Cuba Chabra, he was into that balls deep. <laughs> you'd say something like, well, hey, maybe it's this. Well, of course, you know. That's amazing. Yeah. Anyway, we're all getting hoarse, but. Uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's sign off for now and then, you know, pick it up again. You've got way too much to edit already, I fear. Well, we'll talk. Maybe it'll be a two-parter, and we can. Uh, yeah. We'll talk about the how we do the the sequence. But um, it's been a true pleasure, and uh, I appreciate you. Being, you have honored our family. It's been a really nice day. I love talking to both of you, and um, I hope. Okay, well, I'll look up my first podcast to listen to. Yeah, maybe it should be now, Debbie. Where, where should I start? Well, let's talk about that after. Okay. I'll, I'll give you some. I mean, you could start with Bruce if you wanted. He's, he's, Ooh, he's how do I look that up? Is it listed on your Bruce iPod? B? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he's. Right. Uh, let's see. He's number twenty-two. <laughs> okay. Well, I just contacted. I'm trying to make contact with a guy that went through the Marines with him. That's the first. Oh, cool. Indication anywhere he lost touch with all those guys. Oh wow! I hope you can find him. Yeah. Well, I got his name. He's just got to answer me. He he, he contacted the Bruce Bickford web page before it you know oh, good. before it dissolved and said I, I i served with bruce the marines i'm sorry to learn of his passing i can't honestly think of anybody less fit to become a marine that's amazing <laughs> anyway i'll let you I, know if if that evidence arrives i bet bruce would have loved that like that. oh hell yeah that's amazing you can, you can interview that guy maybe that's great Okay, well, go have a dinner. Be a have a be a father. Be have a life. I'm, I'm going to try. Thank you, and you too. Oh, wait a minute, we're going to watch a movie. Forget it. Yeah, <laughs> I'll probably watch a movie too. Been on. Okay, God bless. I'll see you. All right, lots of love to you. I'll, I'll talk to you soon. Okay, Justin. Bye. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. That was my friend John Hanford. Uh, he had the uh, dubious honor of being episodes 99 and 100 of the podcast heretofore known as Outspoken, but soon to be known by a different name. That's right. I'm changing the name of the podcast. Uh, I've mentioned it a few times before, or I've mentioned some reference to something changing and that's one of the things that's changing there will be other things but largely it will stay the same i'll still have amazing guests who i will speak to uh one in one-on-one at length and in depth and i'm going to keep making music for the show and i'm going to make other kinds of content to be included with the show And I'm going to continue to build my Patreon page to offer more rewards for everybody. 
um, and different levels and different, uh, different ways to get involved and be part of what I hope will continue to be a growing community of people from all over the place doing all kinds of different stuff. And, um, so yeah, I will not tell you the name of the new show yet, but please stay tuned for a follow-up episode, some kind of thing to just announce it and let you know what's happening, Raj. Um, and in the meantime, please go visit my Patreon page um, and see if there's anything that looks like you might want to check it out. Uh, and that can be found at patreon.com slash outspoken podcast. And that address will also be changing. So um, go get in there now and see what's up. And then you just go later and you see what's up again later. Different. And also, if you ever need to reach me, I'm going to hold on to the email. Email at outspokenpodcast.com. And you can reach me there even after the name change. So if you get, for some reason, disconnected or lost and can't find the new show, but you found this one, then that's uh, that would be one way to do it. So, yeah. And anyway, write me anyway, because why not? We're friends, aren't we? Okay. I love you. Thanks again, John. Thank you to all of my guests, all 100 episodes Uh, Thank you to all who support me on Patreon and all who support me in my life in whatever way you might do so. Okay, talk to you soon.